Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. As we close out 2018, we continue our look back at the extraordinary year of 1968. This week, a conversation with University of Minnesota Regents Professor Emeritus of History, Sarah Evans, on some of the events that shaped that tumultuous year. Professor Evans, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. In 1968, the U.S. was notably in a very tumultuous situation with growing anger over the Vietnam War and the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. But the U.S. was not the only country that experienced protests and civil unrest. Why do you think 1968 was such a significant year for social movements and upheaval across the globe? Well, it was a tremendous combination of things. The specific motivator of a great deal of the unrest was the Vietnam War, which was opposed all over the world. But in each country, there were a series of other things. Some of it had to do with a rising middle class and young people whose parents had had an extreme experience of upward mobility, but these young people had gone to college and were kind of being groomed for the elites and were feeling not only critical of a war, but critical of broader systems of hierarchy and inequality. They would jump from colonialism to the rigidities of an educational system in places like France, for example. So you had a generation trying to define itself that had grown up in the post-war economic boom and a huge reaction against um, the, the wars that the Cold War had spawned, and that seemed to most of them to be completely immoral. So you have younger people rebelling against their elders of their same class, but challenging the way their worlds work in schools and in the broader society. And also, this is globalism getting going, you know, in a broader sense, looking around the world at anti-colonial movements and identifying with those. It was an upsurge with multiple dimensions, and it was definitely international. Reflecting upon the year 1968, what global events do you think created the biggest impacts? Well, early in the year was the Tet Offensive. It was in Vietnam, and sort of for the first time, it appeared that American might, American soldiers couldn't hold ground after this war, which had been ramping up for several years and was now exploding in size. We had been drafting young Americans to go fight there. And suddenly the North Vietnamese were overrunning huge amounts of land that had been held by the South Vietnamese and the United States. Eventually they were beaten back. But that event made many people see the United States as more vulnerable, as not so invincible. And it made the other side look valorous, more powerful, certainly willing to sacrifice hugely in order to win, you know, these bits of territory. So that's one thing. The year 1968 just goes from tumult to tumult, opposition to the war 
in the United States led Lyndon Johnson to say he wasn't going to run for president. And suddenly you had Eugene McCarthy campaign against Johnson in the primaries. And at a certain point, Johnson realized he wasn't doing well. And he said, what I want to do is finish this war, and I'm just not going to run again. And suddenly it was an open field in the Democratic Party. And then, of course, we had a series of assassinations. And now I'm talking about events mostly in the U.S., but uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and then a few months later, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, just as he won the California Democratic primary and had become a leading candidate for the presidential nomination. In between those, in May of 68, students literally took over Paris. And then many cities in France. May 68 is still an iconic label. This enormous student uprising. And there, they were certainly against the war in Vietnam, but they were also extremely focused on the rigidities of their educational system and the hierarchies into which they were being trained. So you had that student uprising. Then we have Prague Spring. We have the rebellion in Czechoslovakia, a democratic rebellion against a communist government. Well, actually, it was the communist leadership in Czechoslovakia leading the Czechs towards greater democracy with an enormous sense of hopefulness and possibility. So that was inspiring to people around the world that there could be this shift towards, you know, socialism with the human face, a sort of truly democratic communist country that in August was put down forcefully by Russian tanks, which rolled into Czechoslovakia and crushed that sense of optimism. I realize what I'm describing to you is this combination of utopian optimism, which was bubbling up over the place, and violent repression. And those two things were certainly side by side. And a younger generation around the world was reaching for that utopian optimism and demanding utopianism doesn't want to wait, demanding change right now, right here, because it's the right thing to do. So I could go on and on and on. The year 68 felt, I think, for people who lived through it, like one blow after another. You know, later in the summer, you had the Democratic Convention, which nominated Hubert Humphrey and young people from around the country who'd been working hard against the war showed up in Chicago to demonstrate against the Democratic Party's continued support for the Vietnam War. And, of course, they were met very brutally by the Chicago police and beaten up in front of television cameras. In fact, it's the role of the media that we have to also think about all of these things were broadcast, could be seen on the nightly news. 
We're talking with Sarah Evans. She's a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the legacy of the year 1968. Let's talk about the role of the media for a moment, Professor Evans. A few events come to mind. Obviously, the very violent uh, police action against protesters at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Also, uh, CBS anchor Walter Cronkite traveled to Vietnam and uh, broadcast a series of reports, I believe called The Report from Vietnam. And at the end, he wrapped it up by basically saying that in his view as a reporter, the war was unwinnable and the best the U.S. could do would be to come to some sort of honorable conclusion and and realize that the situation was basically a stalemate. There have been references to that famous comment by Walter Cronkite during the CBS National News, and some folks have said that uh, when President Johnson heard Cronkite, who was called at that time the most trusted man in America, say those words, uh, he realized he had lost middle America. Do you think there's some truth to that? Oh, I do, because I don't think Lyndon Johnson would have withdrawn from the race if he didn't think he had lost middle America. And at that point, you know, there are a lot of books about Vietnam, but it's pretty clear at that point that it was an unwinnable war with the way that we were waging it. And it was dawning finally on people at the highest levels that we could send more and more and more and more troops, more and more Americans were coming home in coffins. The American people were getting weary of the sacrifice. They no longer believed. And Cronkite, saying what he said, kind of put an imprimatur on that realization that this war was interminable. We were not going to win it. It was not like World War II or even the Korean War where you could have an end of the war. You could either have a surrender or a truce and a sense of finality. This one wasn't going to go away. And the loss of American lives began to seem intolerable, not to mention that a whole generation of young American men facing the draft were weighing whether they were willing to risk their lives in a cause that many of them thought was not winnable and many of them also believed was immoral, that we had no business getting involved in a civil war in Vietnam and our enemy had actually modeled their initial declaration on our Declaration of Independence. So things seemed confusing and out of whack and I think there was a loss of confidence in the American people, that whatever we were doing in the world, which for those years of the Cold War, we were continually told we were on the side of right, we were on the side of good, we were on the side of freedom. And I think American people in general began to lose confidence that that was the case. And the sacrifice being demanded of them was very real. You mentioned the role that young people were playing in the social movements throughout the world in 1968. Why do you think young people emerged as voices of dissonance? Well, some of it is that conflict that I was describing earlier between a young generation that actually grew up believing we were good. And that same generation began to see American society 
as not always goodness and light. They were aware that there was incredible poverty, that children went to bed hungry. The civil rights movement, which in its most active phase started in 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycott, but had increased in intensity through the 60s, had made it clear that the United States had tolerated a system of apartheid in the southern United States, and that was enforced with terrorism, with lynching, with brutality. So, you know, there was a sense of disillusion with the Cold War images of the United States as on the side of everything that's good and fair and democratic and free. So that disillusion, I think, was pretty deep, and it also informed responses to the Vietnam War. You pile on that the fact that young men were being drafted, and it's very different than anything we experience today because we no longer have a draft. And so with a volunteer army, it's the people who see the army as a, and the military as an opportunity to overcome poverty. So we basically shunted the military off onto the shoulders of people who are minorities and poor very much. In that period of time, college-age kids wrestled with whether to sign up ahead of time so you could become an officer, dread whether you get your draft papers, and if you get drafted, and if you believe this war is not moral, then what do you do? Do you go to jail? Do you leave the country? Do you take a moral stand, which was also at great risk? So there are just a wide range of things that are motivating a younger generation to say, we want a better world. We've inherited a world that seems to be economically getting better and better, but it isn't living up to the ideals we were taught. Many of us are familiar with the civil rights movement in the U.S. and the rise of the Black Panthers in the late 60s, but what role did race play in other countries? What were the other civil rights movements happening outside of the U.S. in 1968? I'm not sure I know the full list. I mean, I know that young people in Mexico were mobilizing literally by the thousands. I know young people in Japan were mobilizing by the thousands. What did happen in many of those movements is that a women's rights movement spun out of them, and that was international. It was not just here in the United States, although it was certainly very true here. In other places that were a bit more homogeneous racially, what you have is a reaction against rigid class systems and elitism. And in the third world, what you have is the rise of anti-colonial movements, which posed a tremendous challenge to the domination of the United States and Western Europe over their countries, not only politically, but also culturally. So the anti-colonial movement was peaking in the 60s, as one country after another achieved its independence, 
unfortunately, the countries themselves were defined by colonialism because the lines were drawn in Europe. But you have Asians battling to control their own countries. You have African countries coming online as free and independent countries represented in the United States and inspiring African-Americans to see themselves as capable of engaging in governance as well. So they're an enormous range, but there's something contagious. These were fundamentally, deeply democratic movements. And that contagion, the thing I know the most about, spilled over into gender and to challenging the kind of gender stereotypes that were widespread with cultural modifications here and there, but they all fundamentally assumed that men should be dominant and women should be subordinate. Men should be tough. Women should be nurturing. And in place after place after place, the young women who joined their generation in these rebellions turned around and rebelled against their male comrades for trying to put them back in their place. Did the social movements across the globe in 1968 create long-term impacts that we still see today? No question. Absolutely no question. For one thing, the women's movement has endured the wave metaphor is somewhat controversial among scholars. Was there a second wave in the late 60s and early 70s, and now we've had third, fourth, and fifth waves? But there's absolutely no question that an international women's movement continues to exist and has had many ups and downs in the intervening decades. There's also no question that there have been several ways of democratization not always successful. There have also been waves of repression. And I think a lot of the ideals which were held up in that time continued to come back in different forms as new generations struggle to define what for them democracy could mean and how might it be attained, given whatever the obstacles are in different parts of the world. That has not stopped, and I wouldn't say it's linear at all. There are gains and then there are losses. As you mentioned earlier, President Johnson decided not to seek re-election in March of 1968. Was the Vietnam War pretty much a pivotal part of that decision of his not to run? I think it was absolutely the reason he decided not to run. If the war was not really winnable, and if he perceived that the American people no longer believed in that enterprise and no longer supported sending their children to die in it, he basically lost control in some fundamental way. He was a brilliant politician. Lyndon Johnson could count the votes, and he knew that he might lose in this election because he had become such a polarizing figure. The war had not been escalated in the way that it was if it had not cost as many American lives as it had cost, and if it had not proven to be as unwinnable as it clearly was proving to be, 
he would have loved to run for a second term because what he was sacrificing was the political clout to get his social agenda passed in Congress. He got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, 64 and 65, but could never make headway on health care, for example, or any of the other things which um, actually I think he did care about. And so the loss of clout, he wanted to retire with his dignity intact. And that's why he chose not to run. We're talking with Sarah Evans. She's a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the legacy of the year 1968. To what extent did populism influence politics in America in 1968? Populism is a very fraught term, in my opinion. We are using it today to describe right-wing authoritarians who call upon the populist themes of the people versus the elites. That's where the word populism comes from. And it has been used as a label both in extremely authoritarian movements because it depends how you define the people. If it's a narrow definition, then everybody else is alien and outside and has no right to full participation. But it has also been used in democratic settings where the people are defined in an inclusive way. That leads to a very different kind of movement. So I have trouble using the term populism, except to notice that there is always in these kinds of social movements an element of economic grievance about the distribution the way that the benefits of economies are distributed so that some people keep getting more and more. I would say this is probably especially true of the youth movements in third world countries like Argentina and Mexico, where even though the leadership of those movements are middle class, they are acutely aware that in their countries, economic growth is very often feeding wealth to people at the top and not spreading very broadly. And they took up that cause. You could say the same thing about the new left in the United States, the emphasis on building alliances with the poor and recognizing the repression, both economically as well as politically, of African Americans and allying with that basically across class, is a populist move. But I'm just frankly not comfortable with how that term is thrown around these days because I never know which kind of movement we're talking about. Richard Nixon had run for president against John F. Kennedy in 1960 and lost. What made him a viable candidate in 1968? Well, I have to confess that I am not a historian who has focused primarily on presidential politics. I do think he certainly worked hard to remake himself. He learned a lot from that failed attempt. And he was able to take advantage of the fact that Hubert Humphrey couldn't carry the banner of the Democrats very well because he was tied to the war. And what Richard Nixon 
was willing to do, we now know, was through backdoor channels, put the kibosh on the peace talks that were ongoing, that Lyndon Johnson had hoped very much could lead to an end to the war and be kind of his crowning achievement. Nixon sent signals to the South Vietnamese not to cooperate with the deal that was being made because he hoped to win. And if that deal wasn't made, that would make it harder for Humphrey to win. So, you know, this kind of dirty politics was going on at that time behind the scenes, much of which we didn't know about. What we did know was that increasingly the government was lying to us about how the war was going, constantly saying the light at the end of the tunnel, it's just around the corner, and multiplying the body count of the enemy in order to call things a victory. That deep disillusionment of the American people with the truthfulness of their government was undermining um, Humphrey's ability to be a viable candidate, and Nixon took advantage of that to present himself as the one who had, as he said, a secret plan to end the war. And people apparently bought that. Sarah Evans is a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Evans, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. You're welcome. It was a pleasure.